And I should say this idea of like violating the law, um, you know, this happens in this happens in varied contexts, right? So you think about the doctrines of interjurisdictional immunity and paramounts, right? In their own ways, applying those doctrines imply not respecting one order of government's laws, right? But that's not constitutionally problematic to the extent that that doctrine intervenes, right? Welcome back to Runnymede Radio. I'm Christopher Kinsinger. On today's episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Jesse Hartery. Jesse is the past president of Runnymede's McGill Student Chapter and Toronto Lawyer Chapter and a doctoral candidate at Melbourne Law School in Australia. We sit down to discuss his ongoing research regarding the theory and doctrine of Canadian federalism. Welcome to Runnymede Radio. Thanks for having me, Chris. You're obviously no stranger to many people who belong to the Runnymede Society, many of our listeners. You are the former president of the McGill chapter. After that, you went, uh, when you graduated from McGill with your JD and your BCL, you went into private practice and then you did uh, a stint as a clerk at the Supreme Court of Canada with Justice Kazir. And then after that, you went back into private practice. You had an opportunity to appear before uh, the Supreme Court of Canada several times and you were also the president of our Toronto Lawyer Chapter. But now you are overseas. You've gone to Australia to pursue your doctoral studies uh, at the University of Melbourne. So can you give us uh, just a little bit of an overview of what you're working on right now and tell us what drew you uh, to Melbourne as you decided you wanted to pursue uh, these, these advanced graduate studies? Yeah, so I guess I would say just at the outset that I've always been particularly passionate about um, federalism, multi-level governance generally. Um, and I think as a French Canadian, that's just something we're exposed to more more so than, than maybe other Canadians, that the importance of that um, in Canada, particularly for Quebec. Um, and I also have a background in sort of history and Asian studies, um, which led me to sort of study a lot of... Um, emerging federal systems um, or, you know, after the Second World War, um, many countries in Asia pivoted to federalism as a way to sort of accommodate ethnic and religious diversity um, within these countries. So it's it's always been a topic that um, I've been very interested in, passionate about. Um, and, and so this was sort of just the logical next step for me to move to the PhD in an area of law that um, that really appeals to me. Um, in, in a comparative perspective. So what I'm doing right now in particular um, is studying federalism from the perspective of theory uh, and considering the role of courts in federal systems, um, whether or not, uh, how courts should go about their role, whether or not courts are the only tools for sort of preserving federalism in the long term. Um, so that's sort of what interests me. Um and, and what I've, I'll be working on for, I guess, the next the next three to four years. And Australia is just a really good hub. Um, there's a good center for comparative constitutional studies here. Uh, there's a lot of really just great people working on a range of issues. Um, and importantly for me, there's there's a lot of people who have expertise in federalism and comparative federalism in particular. And of course, you're you're maintaining many of those connections uh, to Canada. Can you give us? Um... You've kind of hinted here at where you want to go with your thesis. Can you give us a little bit more uh, detail on on specifically what the vision of federalism is that you are exploring within this and, and how you hope to develop this within 
you know, a broader body of scholarship as you kind of embark on your academic career? Yeah, well, I'm considering, I guess, federalism from a theoretical perspective. So, so what is federalism as a constitutional concept beyond its specific institutional manifestations, right? So from one country to the next, different countries will make different compromises, right? So the the powers allocated in Canada will be different from those in the United States and India. Um, but there's something that sort of unites these countries, right? There's a desire to sort of unite for a broader purposes, for certain purposes, but there's also a corresponding desire to provide autonomy to the subunits, right? Um, and so I'm interested in federalism as a theoretical idea and then approaches to judicial review that sort of reflect that duality, right? So some courts um, are better at this than others. Um, and so part of my work will be sort of looking at how courts do their jobs, um, what approaches sort of are responsive to federalism as a, as a constitutional idea, um, and what approaches are perhaps less conducive to that. Um, so, so part of the work is theoretical, and part of the work is sort of doctrinal, practical, looking at different countries, how courts do their work. Um, and the goal in the long term is sort of twofold, right? One, at least for me, is, is federalism is one of those areas of constitutional law where there's a lot less comparative work being done. So when we think about comparative law generally in the constitutional sphere, we think about human rights. Um, and courts will often cite each other, cite international instruments, and that's sort of a, a routine thing in, in those types of cases. And we see that a lot less in the federalism sphere. And so part of the project is sort of helping to lay the foundation for courts to be able to do that um, in a more rigorous manner by looking at what other people are doing uh, in other countries that might be helpful. Um, but part of the project is also highlighting the things that some courts are doing that are perhaps less helpful um, or, or less responsive to federalism as a constitutional idea and, and considering what the repercussions of that are. So, so faced with these types of circumstances, um, how do we respond to that? Um, so, so at the base of my project, right, is that federalism is important. It's a constitutional good, that the idea of, of coming together, right, for certain purposes, um, that, that that has to be respected, but equally so, the idea of autonomy um, has to be respected, and that and 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 courts that that thread that needle um, are responsive to this type of system, and courts that sort of fail to do that um, are perhaps not responsive to the constitutional idea um, itself. So that's sort of kind of what my project is doing at a very high level. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I know it sounds perhaps a little bit more theoretical than it should, but it is theory heavy mm -hmm. in part because some of this work just hasn't really been done um, in, in this area. Well, well, no doubt it's something that you're going to be uh, exploring, obviously in your thesis, but also in, in other uh, articles uh, um, and, and shorter works over the next few years. So I'm, I'm sure our listeners will be following that with great interest and refreshing your SSRN page to see what you're, uh, you're putting out. And we look forward to seeing uh, the final result when that's finished and, and hopefully eventually published as, uh, as a full monograph. But um, obviously, you know, you're just saying your, your thesis is very uh, theory heavy, but there is also a, a practical doctrinal component. So why don't we shift the conversation then to some of the more practical examples of how 
uh, Canadian federalism has been playing out over the past several years. And I think it's, it's fair to say that it's been a significant few years uh, for Canadian federalism. There's been a lot that's been going on both in the cases before the courts. And I know that you can't comment on some of those because you were counsel on those cases. And, and so we won't kind of go there. But there's also been a lot of legislative proposals as well. And this is something that you have been uh, discussing in some of your uh, opinion writing and outlets such as uh, the Hub or the National Post or, or policy options. So just looking back over the past several years, what would you say, generally speaking, are some of the most important developments that have taken place? Yeah, so I'd say there's there's been there's been a couple. Um, of course, I think I think if we look at just the jurisprudential perspective, um, of course we had a case a couple of years ago on the criminal law power that saw a deeply divided court um, on on the scope of that power, um, and we're seeing different conceptions of federalism at play, really. Um, and so you know, there, there's often I think this sort of facile argument about there's a distinction between what the Privy Council used to do and what the Supreme Court used to do. Um, and, and this idea of watertight compartments is really kind of just a metaphor um, for the concept that autonomy in a federal system is an important value. Um, and that really hasn't changed in the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court in the sense that we see, right, like the secession reference, the court will say, like, this is an important constitutional idea. Um, and, and we see that in other cases, right? And mm -hmm. so in, in this most recent case on the criminal law power, we're seeing the court divide along these lines. So we're seeing a very strong dissent saying autonomy is important, and the court has consistently reaffirmed that. Uh, we have two judges saying we're splitting the baby, we're not taking a position on this in this case, um, on how wide or narrow the criminal law power should be. And then we have three judges who sort of pay lip service to the idea of autonomy, but don't really give it much weight. Um, so, so that, to me, was a surprising development um, in the sense that although the court has a more flexible approach, which is sort of responsive to changing circumstances, it, it in, in many cases, um, has said, you know, we've got to maintain a balance. Um, and in that case, we see sort of three judges not really pay attention to that part of the Supreme Court's case law. Um, and then, of course, we have the greenhouse gas reference, which was a huge, um, a huge moment. Um, but I think you're seeing in that case um, not the same divisions that you're seeing in, in the criminal law power um, jurisprudence, but you're seeing some debate there as well amongst the judges about you know, what vision of our constitution um, should prevail. Um, and, and, and then we have a more recent case in Murray Hall where, you know, the court is unanimous across the board and adopts what I would say is probably um, a very autonomous approach to federalism. So we're seeing, at least on the jurisprudential front, some sort of waves, right? We're seeing some decisions that appear a little bit odd, like the criminal law power case. Um, and then at the other end of the spectrum, we have a case like Murray Hall, where the court is really emphasizing the importance of provincial autonomy, is adopting a narrow approach to the paramountcy doctrine to recognize that. Um, so, so there's a lot of shifts um, on, on, that, on that score, and, and where the court will end up is really anyone's guess. Um, 
um, over, over the next few years. And of course, the court is currently considering the, the Impact Assessment Act reference. Um, so we'll, we'll see sort of where they go with that. Um, but then there's also, of course, waves on the on the charter front, um, which which we can get into. Um, but but you know, so there's so there's a lot going on. I would say for federalism, and of course, mm-hmm. Alberta has sort of been Alberta and Saskatchewan in recent months has been sort of the focal point of these sort of developments and debates. It, well, it, it's an exciting time to be uh, a federalism scholar, which is maybe historically not something you would often hear uh, said, but, th- but there is a lot going on. And, and I want to talk about what's going on with some of these provinces, Alberta in particular. But you, you referenced this idea of um, of watertight compartments, and, and obviously that's a, a metaphor that the, the Privy Council very famously used. And, you know, even within the spectrum of, of views on federalism, I, I you know, it seems to me that there's... Um, maybe not so much a spectrum or, or, or a debate happening within those who generally are are very um, pro-federalist, who, who are very, or rather pro-provincial uh, autonomy. But there's been this interesting dialogue about um, the utility of that metaphor. So so Asher Honickman, in an article for the Alberta Law Review, has written very favorably about this idea of watertight compartments. Uh, Malcolm Lavoie, in his recent book, uh, Trade and Commerce, suggests uh, that we update the metaphor a bit to, to water-resistant compartments. Uh, to, to acknowledge that there is occasionally uh, legitimate um, overlap. And, and I don't think there's really too much difference between what Asher proposes in his article and Malcolm proposes. But, but I just wonder if we can get your thoughts on, on that as we, we kind of think about the general uh, impulse of, of Canadian federalism is, uh, with, as far as that metaphor is concerned, it, are you kind of trending more toward watertight compartments or water-resistant compartments? Well... I guess neither, <laughs> um, okay. or in in the sense that I think I think it it's a useful it, it was a useful concept for its day, right? To convey, as I said, sort of earlier, the idea that provincial autonomy is an important constitutional value, right? Now, is it the best metaphor to use for that concept? Maybe, maybe not. Um, of course, the Supreme Court um, is of the view that it's not so helpful. Um, but, but you know, it's important to recognize that even the Privy Council itself, I mean, recognize they're the ones who created the double aspect doctrine, right? So, so even the Privy Council itself recognized that there will inevitably be overlap. The question is, recognizing that, how far does one go, mm-hmm. right? Um, and And so to me... To the extent that that metaphor is unhelpful to the debate, then I think perhaps we shouldn't use it. Um, I'm not sort of wedded to it in that sense. Um, but, but you know, the, in the Supreme Court's more recent case law, when you think about the securities reference, the 2011 securities reference, right? The court says it's not because we've acknowledged flexible federalism um, that you can you can dispense with the division of powers and the balance between the orders of government, right? And you see that idea of constitutional balance sort of coming up in a lot of the Supreme Court's cases. Um, And that's sort of the court telling us, you know, yes, flexibility, like, yes, one needs to be flexible, but we're still a federation at the end of Mm -hmm. the day. We still have a federal system and that means something, right? Mm -hmm. So yes, you know, the provinces came together to create a union for certain purposes, and, and we need to let the central government exercise those functions, right? And have the sort of leeway to exercise those powers. 
But doing so doesn't mean subsuming provincial powers into federal powers. Um, so I guess the answer to your question is I, I, I don't see a problem with the metaphor in the sense that I didn't, I didn't have an issue with it when the Privy Council used it. Um, but to the extent that, you know, um, it's unhelpful to the conversation of, of just saying like provincial autonomy is an important constitutional value, then I personally don't, you know, attach much significance to it. Like right. it doesn't matter to me, for example, when the court says, you know, we don't do watertight compartments anymore. That doesn't bother me um, because then you have a bunch of statements where the court's saying provincial autonomy is an important constitutional value, right? And so the court is saying the same thing in different ways um, than the Privy Council did. So if the court, of course, said, you know, provincial autonomy isn't important, um, then, then, you know, that would be a concern about the substance. But to the extent that we're disagreeing about the label, um, I find that conversation less helpful um, than a conversation about how the court is actually doing its work and how we understand federalism jurisprudentially, but also politically, like how federalism is lived, what it means okay. to be a federal system. Um, and I, supp I suppose that's always the risk with, well, with a lot of topics in law in general, right, is when you, you focus so much on the labels and, and not on the substance that you end up missing the forest for the trees and uh, you, you miss what the uh, the jurisprudence is actually saying anyway, which which may be quite close to in this case, you know, the vision that that you would um, that you would be sympathetic to. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think I wouldn't say you know I've written articles where I've been I've been critical of some of the Supreme Court's cases, so I admit that, and I and I'm on the record on that. So no, of course, you know, I can't get away from that. Um, and and there are cases where I do think the court is unresponsive or isn't isn't careful enough um but then there are cases on the other side of the balance right like mm -hmm. the, sec the securities the 2011 securities reference is a really good example you know despite all the parties that intervened in that case and the economic interests that wanted the court to recognize federal jurisdiction you know the court resisted the temptation to do that and reaffirmed the importance of provincial autonomy um, so, you know, while there are cases that I'm, I'm critical of, and, and I don't have a problem saying that, there are also cases where the court, I think, does a really good job um, of explaining the concepts. Um, so there's, there's good and bad, is sort of, of the way I would put it. <laughs> well, well as, as, as long as there are courts, the jurisprudence is always going to be mixed, right? It would be quite shocking if we agreed with everything. Right. Um, exactly. Okay, so let's let's bring this conversation. You know, we, we said we were going to talk a little bit about what's happening on the ground, uh, practically speaking, uh, with with some of these provinces and some of the legislation they've been passing and the impact that that has on federalism. So let's talk about Alberta, because really the two big players, typically when we're talking about federalism, are Alberta and Quebec. At least for the past few decades, you mentioned Saskatchewan is a province that is starting to have a bit more of an impact on these conversations. But, you know, when you think about the two big ones, you think about Alberta and you think about Quebec. And when Danielle Smith became premier last year, that really seemed uh, to up the ante in terms of federalism conversations happening in Alberta, and particularly with the passage of uh, the province's so-called uh, sovereignty within a United Canada Act. So I know you have thoughts both on the original proposal that was made that eventually wound up 
being embodied in the legislation, you know, we can debate the extent to which it actually uh, came to fruition versus the actual law that was passed. So can you give us your responses to both the original proposal uh, of the Sovereignty Act and the law as it was actually passed later last year? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the initial proposal, um, and, and this was sort of the Free Alberta strategy, so, so they sort of was a broader document um, with sort of a bunch of different policies, and within that document was sort of this proposal for an Alberta Sovereignty Act. Um, so, so I'm going to focus on the Alberta Sovereignty Act, but there are other elements of that proposal um, you know, that were some, some elements that were unconstitutional. So, for example, there was a proposal to um, have the Alberta government appoint federal judges, judges to the Superior Court and the Court of Appeal, which obviously they can't do. Right. Um, and that's not to say that, that you know, the Constitution shouldn't be amended to do that. You know, Meech and Charlottetown, you know, uh, proposed sort of having the provinces be involved in, in the process of nominating judges. Right. But as and, a question and, of black letter law. Right, exactly. As a question of law, that's not something they can do. Um, so, so for sure, some elements of that proposal were unconstitutional. And the Alberta Sovereignty Act um, in, in that document um, was also unconstitutional on its face, right? In the sense that when you read it, um, it, it gave, it, it basically said that, that Alberta wouldn't follow court decisions, that, that they might not follow court decisions. Um, and, and of course, that's just not something you can do, um, or, or, or at least if you believe in the rule of law, um, that's just not something you can do. Um, and so initially, when people were coming out and saying, you know, the proposal is unconstitutional, my initial reaction was, yeah, like, that's not incorrect. Um, but I expected, I assumed that at some point, someone would explain the nuance, because there's, there's some parts of that initial proposal um, that that might have been constitutional, right? Like there was some there was some gray areas um, and, and some of it that was clearly not constitutional. And so my expectation was that eventually, you know, someone in the Canadian Academy would sort of explain these distinctions, would would say, you know, you can't do this. Um, you can do this, but, you know, so there are some portions you can do. There are some things you just can't do. Um, and that explanation just wasn't forthcoming. Um, and so that sort of led me to write a piece in October for policy options. Mm -hmm. um, this was, I think, right after the premier had been um, elected by her party to, le yes. to leave her party. Um, so I wrote, a, I wrote an article basically saying, to the extent that the law, because there was a portion where it said, you know, that in the initial proposal, it said it would provide Alberta's legislature with the authority to refuse enforcement of any specific act of parliament or federal court ruling, right? So there, so there's two sort of parts to that, right? The first part is refuse to enforce an act of parliament. Mm -hmm. And the second part is refuse to enforce a federal court ruling. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I did in my piece in October is I said, you know, to the extent that the proposal is about refusing to enforce court rulings, right, mm -hmm. or, or relieving an individual, someone, of their obligation to comply with federal law, 
that should be rejected, right? But to the extent that the proposal is about the refusal to enforce federal law, so a province refusing to enforce federal law, that is constitutionally permitted, right? And, and to explain why that is, um, you know, I go back to sort of basic principles of federalism. This is like federalism 101, mm-hmm. um, that in a federal system, there's a division of legislative and executive authority, right? And so you've got two orders of government. Every province has a legislature. Every province has an executive. The federal government has parliament and there's an executive branch, right? And because of the principle of responsible government, every executive is responsible to its legislature, right? Mm. So that's the basic scheme. Like that's the scheme at the outset, right? Um, Over time, so in the 1950s, the provinces and the federal government started to get creative about federalism. And initially, so in 1951, there, there was a case about legislative delegation. So one legislature delegating to another legislature um, their legislative authority. And the Supreme Court said, you can't do that. That's unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. Well, then the next year, <laughs> they try a different approach and they delegate executive functions to another mm-hmm. order of government. And the Supreme Court says that will allow. Right? Right. So, so, so since that case, right, each order of government transfers executive authority to each other, right? In, in not all the time, right? But on a variety of issues, sometimes they will transfer executive authority to each other, right? So, so they're cooperating. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, so, and so, but what the court says is you can agree to do this, right? So the federal government can transfer its authority to the, to the province, but the province, because they control their own executive branch, they're not obliged to do that work for the federal government, right? So the orders of government can cooperate and the court encourages that, right? And permits it, but it's not required by the constitution. In fact, the original design, right? Is that it wouldn't even be happening mm-hmm. um, unless the court had permitted it. Um, and then you have sort of a line of cases where the court sort of reaffirms this idea of autonomy. Um, and, and the most recent cases on this are the sort of the securities cases. So in 2018, the federal government and the provinces tried to get together to create, you know, a, a national securities system. Um, and Quebec objected to that system. And, and the court said, you know, you can always choose not to be part of this. You can always choose to go your own way and not cooperate. That is your prerogative. Um, and so, and so what, what my article in October tried to say was, you know, the court has encouraged, permitted cooperation, but it has never mandated it. And so it is entirely permitted for a province to decline to enforce federal laws or implement federal laws to administer right, federal laws themselves. Mm-hmm. They can say to the federal government, listen, we're not doing this work for you. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to do it yourself um, if you want to do this with your own funds. Because um, often when, they're, when they cooperate, the government might transfer some funds to help with the administration and that eases things. 
Um, but a province always retains the prerogative to say, we're, we're not doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so when, once you understand, right, how the principle of responsible government works, how the idea of coordinate federalism works, this idea of a province declining to enforce federal law really isn't that extreme. It's just mm-hmm. part of the way the system works, right? Mm-hmm. So, so what I said in that article is, the proposal, to the extent that it does that, is fine. But mm-hmm. the part where you're saying you're refusing to enforce court rulings, that's a no-go, right? Mm-hmm. So the parliament can always decide, or the federal executive, I apologize, can always decide to enforce their own law, right? And so a province can't stand in the way of that. Um, they, they can just say, we're not going to do it ourselves, but they can't prevent the federal government from doing that work. And, and obviously, in addition to that, a province can't uh, direct members of the executive of its executive uh, branch uh, to violate federal law. Is that is that fair to say as well, to the extent that the proposal well, envisioned that? I guess this gives us an opportunity to discuss what that actually means. Um, so, so yes. Yes, in the sense that provincial officials can't violate federal law in the same way that any other person can't, right? So if I'm an individual and I go to the supermarket and I steal something um, and there's a law that says no stealing and I act contrary to that, the federal government can prosecute me for that. So the consequence for doing so is that I might get a fine or a jail sentence or whatever, but the federal government enforces that. And, and that principle applies to everyone for laws of general application. So if a provincial official goes to the supermarket to steal something, right, they could, they could do that in theory, but there can be consequences for that. And the consequence is that the federal government can come in and enforce its law and bring proceedings before the courts and the courts will render a judgment and that's enforceable. So, you know, you, you can't, ignore the law in the sense that they can't ignore those enforcement powers. So if the federal government enforces the law of general application, that's binding on everyone. You can't escape federal law in that sense. But as I've said, one one point where that's slightly different under the existing legal framework is with executive functions themselves, given our federal structure. So, so often when the orders of government are cooperating or tr- transferring executive functions to each other, there's going to be a legal instrument um, that does that or that cabins how the orders of government are going to cooperate. And so the state of the law right now is that a provincial executive can always decline to administer federal laws. So, so they could mm-hmm. act contrary to federal law, I suppose, in that sense. And the same goes for the federal executive with respect to provincial laws, right? That executive can't be coerced into administering. It's a two-way street. Exactly. It goes both ways. So, you know, can you think about education, for example, if the province of Ontario tomorrow decided to force the federal government to implement Ontario's education curriculum, the federal government could say, we're not doing that. And I should say this idea of like violating the law, um, you know, this happens in this happens in varied contexts, right? So you think about the doctrines of interjurisdictional immunity and paramountcy, right? Mm-hmm. In their own ways, applying those doctrines imply not respecting one order of government's 
laws, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not constitutionally problematic to the extent that that doctrine intervenes, right? So if, if I just give an example here, um, in the Maloney case from 2015, this was a, this was a bankruptcy case. You had a, you had a provision in the Federal Bankruptcy Act that says you're relieved from your obligations, you know, you no longer have a debt in the following circumstances. But the province has a law that says you can bring enforcement proceedings um, in specific cases, right? Um, and so when the court applies the paramountcy doctrine, the effect is that you're allowed to violate provincial law. But that's not constitutionally problematic violation of federal law um, because there are constitutional doctrines to do this. Um, so, so I think a, a huge part of the problem with these types of constitutional issues is that it requires really getting into the weeds mm -hmm. on some specific constitutional doctrines. And it's sometimes not easy to do that in a public debate. <laughs> Um, and, and, and so a lot of the discussion around some of these issues requires an incredible amount of nuance. Um, and much of it is hard to explain. Um, and much of it just wasn't explained um, in, in, in the way that it probably should have um, to the average reader. Um, but all this to say, right, the, the initial proposal in the Free Alberta Strategy, to me, it's beyond doubt that it was clearly unconstitutional. Yeah. And one of the authors of the strategy said as much, right, that that, that was the goal initially of, of that proposal as it was drafted in that sort of document. Mm -hmm. um, but then the question becomes, you know, over time, what did it end up becoming? So the first thing is that Premier Smith on her website, um, and I have all these extracts in the article that I that I prepared, um, in October, but in, in, on her website, she removed, so in, in the same paragraph where she uses the words refuse provincial enforcement, um, she doesn't use the word courts anymore. Mm -hmm. So that word disappears in that paragraph. And then after the campaign, of course, we have those statements from the premier and her political staff that they will abide by Supreme Court decisions because there was also a concern in the initial proposal that they might not comply with rulings declaring their actions unconstitutional. And so they sort of said after the campaign, we're going to comply by, we're going to comply with um, Supreme Court decisions. Um, so, so we were seeing a shift, right, um, from the campaign website being a bit more specific or removing certain elements. And then, you know, press conferences where they're saying we're going to respect the law. Um, and that leads us, of course, to the proposal officially being sort of released um, in, in its current form. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so when the proposal came out, it seemed to track that path. Right. So in the article that I wrote in October, I sort of said, you know, if the premier wants to go forward with this, the government of Alberta wants to go forward with this. Um, there's a path. There's a constitutional path and they should follow that path. And in the end, it seemed to me that the language coming out of their office um, and certainly the information sheet that accompanied the bill. So often when when 
a bill is released, there, there's mm -hmm. a sort of a statement, right? That sort of says like, here's what we're trying to achieve with this. Um, and the information sheet that accompanied the bill basically reiterated what they'd been saying publicly, that they were going to abide by court decisions, that the primary focus was non-enforcement of federal laws. Um, so all that context then led, you know, to me and, and Jeffrey Sigalit um, writing that article for The Hub, where we said that the proposal appeared to be constitutional. We deduced the government's intention from the structure of the law itself and noted that, you know, on one reading, it achieves the purpose that they set out in the information sheet and in the, the premier's speech in, in the legislature when the bill was introduced. But we acknowledged in our articles on this that the law was potentially susceptible to a different interpretation with respect to provincial officials, which we've sort of already discussed a bit. Um, and, and, and that's why we use the word appears constitutional, because ultimately it's going to depend on how or if the law is operationalized in practice. So, you know, our analysis was that if their aim with this was to decline to administer federal laws and they limit themselves to that, that's fine based on existing law. But if the province meant to go beyond declining to do that, right, or if they choose right, right, right. to do so in the future, then there's no doubt that they're gonna face a constitutional hurdle on that. So ultimately it really depends on how this is used in practice, if, if at all, right? Um, and, and I should say that limiting the law to declining to administer federal laws doesn't mean the proposal is ineffective, right? There, there are examples in Canadian history um, and, and in other federal systems of the subnational units using non-enforcement as a structural protection of liberty. So, so mm -hmm. even though it doesn't prevent the federal government from enforcing its own laws, um, a province declining to do so can sometimes make it more difficult for the federal government to do it. So you can think of, for example, Quebec in the 1970s and in the 1980s with abortion. Um, and more recently, half the provinces have declined to, um, you know, uh, put immigrants in provincial jails on non-criminal grounds, um, among other examples. And, and often in these specific cases, it's human rights organizations that are the ones lobbying for this. Um, and, and so on the ground, right, if the federal government doesn't enforce its own laws, right, um, it's as though that law just didn't apply. Um, and, and so I should also say, you know, the fact that, that this is constitutional or, or potentially constitutional, depending on how it's applied, doesn't mean it's a good idea in every case. Um, and, and that was something that we had also made clear in our interventions on this, um, because sometimes there's good reasons to cooperate. Um, but ultimately, that's a decision for the orders of government themselves. And that's what the Supreme Court has said. Um, and, you know, there's a separate debate about the Supreme Court's jurisprudence on, on exiting um, intergovernmental agreements, which they've said, you know, the same rule, that they're subject to unconstrained unilateral abrogation, um, which in my view could be slightly more nuanced, and I'm going to be doing some work on this. Um, yeah. But that's the law as it stands, right? Um, 
so so that was sort of the purpose of of the intervention um, f from our perspective. Well, I want to I want to talk about um, you know I want to come back to kind of all of these issues and bring it back to some other pieces of legislation that have passed uh, that you've also written about, including uh, the recent Alberta Firearms Act. But I want to focus on, on one other aspect of uh, the Sovereignty Act is. Uh, that that generated a little bit of debate in some of the uh, public commentary that was coming out as as the the law was um, was being passed, and that was and that was its inclusion of uh, a Henry VIII clause. And so I want to take a little bit of a tangent here and address that for a few moments. Um, and and the original version of the law as passed included some of these provisions, and then it was it was later amended to to remove those. But but in essence, a Henry VIII clause allows the executive branch to amend or repeal ordinary or primary uh, legislation without going through the, the legislature to do so. Now, Stephen Armstrong, who's another uh, Runnymede alumni, uh, has, has written about this in our journal, the Dicey Law Review, in which he has argued against their constitutionality. And so we, we plan to have him on the, the podcast at some point in the next few months uh, to talk about this and to give us his take on that. So maybe kind of just tease Stephen up a little bit. Um, can you kind of give us your response to just the general idea of Henry VIII clauses, whether it was it was a good idea to to have included that in the original version of the Sovereignty Act, or whether you were happy to see that removed in in later versions of the legislation? Yeah, so certainly, ultimately, I was I you know in a sort of a follow up piece, Jeff and I said um, that we were happy to see it removed, or that we would encourage that. Um, my view, which I said publicly at the time, was that, you know, I personally find Henry VIII clauses to be problematic for many reasons. Um, but the Supreme Court has said that they're constitutional. So that's the law as it currently stands, right? And so the analysis that, that I was providing and that Jeff was providing at the time was strictly about the legal validity, right, of, of this proposal um, as enacted. Um, and so, you know, while acknowledging the concerns, which we did, we said, you know, some people have raised concerns about the democratic, um, you know, the democratic concerns surrounding these provisions. And those are legitimate concerns that should be debated. Um, so in the end, yeah, I'm, I was happy to see them removed. Um, but it should be said that, you know, the proposal as it was actually initially drafted was more democratic than most Henry VIII clauses we see, right? So, so normally a Henry VIII clause, I mean, it's just a broad delegation to the executive and there's no need to come back to the legislature, right? It's, it's a delegation and that's it, it's done, right? Unless the legislature removes the delegation, those powers can be exercised um, should the situation arise, right? The way that this act was drafted initially was that You'd have to go to the a minister before the minister could exercise or the, the government could exercise the powers under the act. They'd have to go to the legislature to get a resolution. Um, and so in a way, it's like going to get a democratic mandate, right? Um, so, so I said at the time that it was less democratically objectionable but no less objectionable, <laughs> right? Um, so objectionable nonetheless, um, just maybe a little bit less than others we've seen. Um, but yeah, I think the concern generally, right, with Henry VIII clauses is that um, 
the executive can essentially pass legislation without having to go through an open democratic process. Um, and that's problematic, right? L legislature can't scrutinize the legislation, can't propose amendments. Um, there might not be a debate in the public sphere. You know, there's a lot of regulations that are adopted by the government and often that's not part of the public conversation. It's just something that happens sort of secretly. Um, so the, the beauty of passing legislation is that it has to go through, at least federally, three readings, right? Mm -hmm. There's debate, there's the two houses. Um, and, and, and so Henry VIII clauses sort of circumvent all of that. And so right. they're problematic in that sense. Um, but again, it comes back to the idea of responsible government that you were talking about earlier. Right, exactly. So it's the idea that the, you know, the executive will go to the legislature, be held accountable. So let's return then to, um, on this, we're thinking about Alberta, we're talking about some of these, uh, laws that they've been passing that, that touch on these really core issues of federalism. So let's return to a more recent law that has come out of Alberta. And as you put it, this law is once again, testing the limits of federalism, and that's the Alberta Firearms Act. And it follows up from an announcement late last year that the province will ostensibly take over firearms prosecutions and issue guidance on this front to Crown prosecutors in Alberta. So some similar ideas that, that animated the, uh, the Sovereignty Act. So what's been the scholarly response to this law? And broadly speaking, in your view, is it constitutional? Is it partially unconstitutional, what, what what are we looking at here? Yeah, so I, I think the proposal is, at least from my perspective, unconstitutional on, on existing law, right? So going back to sort of the concepts I explained earlier, um, there, there is no problem with a province declining to enforce federal law. That is something that's done all the time. Um, but you, you can't, you know, you can't break federal law, you can't, you know, and you can't relieve someone of their obligation to comply. So the federal government can always come in and enforce its own law. That's the general idea, right? But for the criminal law, Canada has sort of a different history um, than other federal systems. So some scholars prior to the 1970s um, argued that in the Canadian context, with respect to the criminal law, Parliament has the authority to adopt the substantive criminal law and the provinces, because they have authority over the administration of justice, they have the authority to essentially administer the criminal law. So under this sort of theory, um, the federal government couldn't enforce its own law. So it could adopt cr criminal legislation but mm -hmm. the decision-making about whether or not to prosecute or investigate certain offenses was entirely a provincial matter. So a province could decide to investigate or not investigate certain crimes, and that was permitted, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's one theory. The other theory was, well, no, the federal government always has the ability to enforce its own laws, as it does for any other head of power, Right. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't exclude the criminal law power. But what the Constitution permits in this case is a delegation to the provinces that it allows both orders of government to enforce the law. Um, and so in, in the late, I believe, the late 1960s or the early 1970s, 
Parliament adopted a law that gave the Attorney General of Canada the authority to prosecute certain federal criminal offenses. And that law was challenged in the courts. And so this debate about these competing theories um, you know, came before the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court decided um, that, the, yes, the federal government could enforce its own law, its own criminal laws, um, but that the Constitution also permitted you know, delegation to the provinces. So, so the federal government wouldn't have to do it itself. It could say the provinces will do these, these prosecutions and these investigations. Mm -hmm. um, and, so, and so that idea, that theory about the federal government not being allowed to do that basically you know, was expressed in a dissent by then Justice Dixon, who of course is a very famous Supreme Court judge. So it's not just any judge writing this. Um, and, and two other judges, so this was a seven judge panel in this case that decided this. Two other judges basically didn't take a side. They, they didn't agree with the dissent and they didn't really agree with the majority, but they also didn't say anything to contradict the majority. They were sort of just content to be bound by what the law was without expressing mm -hmm. an opinion. Mm -hmm. um, so we have this sort of weird situation where you've got four judges saying, this is the view, and you've got one judge who writes a strong dissent, and then you've got two other, other judges who kind of just say, like, we're not taking a position on this. Um, and so, but the law today is the federal government can enforce its own, its own criminal laws, right? Mm -hmm. So a province doesn't have to do that. So, so, so my comment uh, about the Firearms Act was to the extent that, you know, Alberta is saying um, we're not going to enforce the Federal Firearms Act. We're not going to cooperate in seizing firearms. Um, that that's permitted, just like mm -hmm. any other case of provincial non-enforcement, right? Um, but there was a provision in the law that says, you know, you can't be a seizure agent unless you have a license from the province. And it seemed, at least in the media, right. that the goal was to prevent the federal government from enforcing its own law, right? right. Or at least potentially doing so, because of course the act has to be operationalized through regulations. Um, and so I said, to the extent that you're doing that, that your goal is to prevent the federal government from enforcing its own law, that's unconstitutional based on existing law. But the purpose of my article was to say, it's possible, I have no idea, but it's possible that Alberta is trying to reopen this debate um, that, that divided the court in the 1970s and 80s, right? About the criminal law power and, and the authority to enforce, that Alberta may be trying to relitigate the issue and, and right. get the court to sort of reconsider it. Um, of course, it's always open to the Supreme Court to reconsider its case law, so I, you know, I don't make any bets about that. Um, but certainly, based on the existing jurisprudence, that's an argument that will not take it very far, um, unless it manages to convince the court, you know, that that those cases should be overturned. Um, so, so I think the point with the second piece was sort of to to note that this act is definitely unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. At least, you know, if it's operationalized in the way that it it's, seems they seem to want to operationalize it, it's not going to fly. Um, but that with respect to the criminal law power, Canada has a unique history. So the arguments that I was talking about earlier about the Alberta Sovereignty Act, um, 
it, it's more complicated with the criminal law power for that, for the reason that I just explained, right? Mm-hmm. If that second theory, right, that was ultimately rejected, but if, if Justice Dixon's approach to the criminal law power had been adopted, right, the effect of that approach would be that in practice, a province could decline to investigate and prosecute criminal offenses mm-hmm. and the federal government couldn't do anything about it, right? That would be the effect of his approach. Mm-hmm. And so when you go back to that sort of discussion about the Sovereignty Act, the criminal law is one aspect historically for Canada, Canadian federal system, where that analysis is a little bit different. Um, but on the substance of the law, right, as it stands, um, the principles I explained for the Sovereignty Act are the same across the board, no matter what area of jurisdiction it is. Um, it's just that, you know, there is that dissent from Chief Justice Dixon, and there's, you know, I think both arguments are compelling, right? The mm-hmm. argument from those who adopt the, the Dixon approach is that, well, Canada made a different choice than other federations, right? We, we made a unique choice in our constitution to divide the functions in this way, and, and that should be respected. Um, the other view is, well, you know, they couldn't possibly have intended the federal system to work in this way, because the normal way that federal systems work is that the corresponding executive can enforce its own laws. Right. Um, and so, you know, for the court to read that out would be just extraordinary. Right. And that's some of the arguments that you get in the cases in the 70s and 80s. Right? Mm-hmm. The majority is saying, like, the effect of this position is that we're depriving the federal government of its, its ability to enforce the law. Um, and that's why ultimately they, they reject the Dixon approach. Right? Um, so anyway, so, you know, it's just a flare that this is a sort of a, a unique issue to the Canadian system. And, and it's no doubt an, an issue that we're going to continue to be seeing discussed as as laws like this are passed. So we'll, we'll definitely need to have you back on the podcast at some point once we maybe once some of these uh, laws have been uh, tested in, in litigation to get some of your response to that. But I want to round off this conversation. We've been talking a lot about uh, division of powers, which is very natural when you're talking uh, about federalism, but I actually want to talk about federalism for a moment um, from the charter angle as a way of kind of concluding our conversation today. And, and to, you know, I'm going to lob a little bit of a, a constitutional hand grenade here and do it and, and raise the issue of section uh, 33 of the charter for a few minutes, the so-called notwithstanding clause, which over the past several years has been subject to increasing use by several provinces, uh, notably uh, Ontario and Quebec, Saskatchewan a little bit, which was another one of these provinces that you mentioned is becoming a bit of a player on the federalism scene. And, and I don't want to focus here on, on the technical arguments about what Section 33 does or the normative arguments about whether it should or shouldn't be used, whether it's desirable that it's even in the Constitution. Uh, this is something at Running Week we've given a lot of airtime to. We talk about these issues a lot. I, I instead want to go on a different approach when we think about Section 33 with this question. And, and I want to ask you, what reliance on the notwithstanding clause reveals about the state of Canadian federalism, if anything? Because there are some provinces that have used federalist defenses mm-hmm. uh, to justify their use of Section 33, Quebec being uh, probably the most prominent one, that this is somehow, Section 33 somehow facilitates either 
if not federalism itself, at least the values that reinforce federalism. What's your take to that kind of rationale um, that that defends you know the use of Section Thirty Three? Yeah, I mean it's certainly a debate um, that we see in federalism scholarship, right? A, a tension between um, federalism and rights um, is is sort of a theme that that comes up a lot. Um, and, and the reason for that tension is because, generally speaking, when we talk about rights um, or when we conceive of rights, we think about them as universal, right? So it's the same standard for everyone. Um, and of course, one can see how, how there can be tension with federalism, right? Because by definition, federalism as a concept entails that different polities Will adopt different approaches, right? So Ontario will have a different framework from Quebec, have a different framework from BC, right? So, so you can see how just on the face of it, right, mm-hmm. these two ideas, these two concepts can collide, right? And certainly there's scholarship um, that, that says that historically the Supreme Court has not been as sensitive um, to marrying the two concepts, right? Um, There are some cases where under Section 1, you see the court um, adopting a balancing approach under Section 1 that is more um, deferential to recognize that reality. So you see it in, for example, Quebec versus A, um, or Chief Justice McLaughlin's concurring opinion. You know, she sort of says we have to be careful when Mm -hmm. we're adjudicating charter cases not to... um, sort of sweep away the diversity that lies at the at the core of the idea of federalism. Um, and certainly in, in other countries, like the, the in Europe, so the European Convention on Human Rights has been interpreted in a way to give, to, to sort of recognize that different countries might have different approaches to a certain issue. So as long as they don't, you know, depart from a, a, a minimum core of rights, um, they're given sort of some latitude um, with respect to what they do. Um, so, so I think in part, the debate around the notwithstanding clause is about, is about these concepts, right? Mm-hmm. Is some of it is the provinces responding to, you know, let's be honest, political circumstances, right? So it's not the philosophical niceties that you and I are discussing. Um, but in some contexts, I think perhaps it's a response to what some provinces might not, might perceive um, as the as the courts not being responsive to their unique circumstances, so I think certainly in the case of Quebec, that's sort of the narrative, right? That's the conversation for at least the preemptive use of Section thirty three is that there's an understanding that the law wouldn't hold up under the court's own interpretation, right? Um, of of freedom of religion even though, right, in that specific case, and I'm not getting on the merits of, of the Quebec use of it, um, that other countries like Quebec, right, um, civil law systems in Europe, um, similar measures have been upheld, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, so I think that's part of what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, is the notwithstanding clause the best tool for that, I, I don't know, um, mm-hmm. but, but certainly I think that's how it's perceived. Um, certainly by Quebec, um, it's perceived as a tool to sort of give expression to its distinctiveness, um, whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. It, it, well, in the very least, it sounds like the beginnings of a, of a very interesting uh, law review article. Um, of course, there, there have been, there's been scholarship that's touched on this theme uh, over the years. But as this continues to unfold and, and we see a lot of scholarship returning to Section 33 and, and focusing on particular uses, it would be really fascinating at some point to see uh, um, a, a paper kind of address that, um, you know, the, the federalism rationale. Yeah, and I should—I mean, I should say to to be fair that um, you know, Dwight Newman at least has has published an article where he sort of uh, or chapter in a in an edited collection where he sort of touches on these issues, right? Um, he he talks about the notwithstanding clause as sort of, of course, being tethered to underlying democratic principles, um, but also giving expression to sort of these multiple identities within the federation. Um, but but I agree with you. There, there's certainly more work. To be done on that, um, and and certainly how it plays out in the coming years will be will be an interesting development. Well, Jesse, I want to thank you uh, for taking the time to record this. Obviously, with the time difference, we we had to, to coordinate this. So so I'm uh, you know in the office first thing in the morning doing this. This is very late at night for you. So we appreciate you uh, making the time for this as you've continued to make the time uh, for Runnymede since you were a student, and uh, no doubt we will continue to see you at upcoming Runnymede uh, events and conferences and hopefully back on the podcast at one point. So uh, wishing you all the best as you continue to embark on your doctoral studies. And we look forward to continuing this conversation again very soon. Appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening. Runnymede Radio is a program of the Runnymede Society, a nonpartisan organization of Canadian law students, lawyers, and legal scholars committed to the principles of constitutionalism, fundamental freedoms, and the rule of law. Our podcast is edited by Thomas Falcone and produced by me, Christopher Kinsinger. Our podcast sponsor is LexisNexis Canada. Follow us on social media for updates on our summer CPD series, and stay tuned for more interviews with leading Canadian jurists and legal scholars. So long for now.